Matthew 5, verse 13. You were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You were the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us now through your word, um, that as you have called us to be salt and light in this world, that you would um, help us to remember that, that that would really be a calling that we embrace uh, for the sake of uh, lost souls, for the sake of the people around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, you guys can take a seat. Let me start with a question. Um, what would you say that Christians are known for? What would you say that Christians are known for? You can think about the Christians that you personally know. Um, you can think about maybe Christians on your campus or even just Christians in general. Like, What is your perception of Christians? What are they known for? What is the world's perception of them? And I'm guessing it's probably a wide range of responses. Right, and on, on both ends of the spectrum, there are genuinely, I think, good uh, and positive things that people would say. They might say that Christians are compassionate or generous or willing to meet needs or uh, generally moral people. Right, so like good, positive things, and yet there are surely negative things too. Right, whether uh, fairly or unfairly, you might hear people say that Christians are bigoted or hypocritical or anti-intellectual. Uh, maybe you even have some of those feelings yourself. Listen to how one secular college professor describes the Christians that she encountered. She said, Christians seemed like bad readers to me, which I thought was ironic given that they believed the Bible was the true truth. Christians use the Bible in a way to end a conversation rather than to deepen it. But the most frustrating thing to me about Christians was that they simply would not leave consenting adults alone. So maybe you've heard, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you've heard something like that, right? A comment like that from uh, a classmate or uh, online or uh, in, in, on your secular campuses. And I wonder when you hear something like that, what is your response? Like, what are some of the things that you might be feeling? Do you feel defensive? Do you feel a little bit in agreement? Um, are you embarrassed of being a Christian? Well, we're continuing tonight with our second message in our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount challenges us, and it's about what it means and what it looks like to be a true disciple of Jesus, right? What it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And last time, we started by looking at the Beatitudes, verses 1 to 12. And the Beatitudes are the qualities or the character of someone who is blessed, right? And that's what the word Beatitude means. It means blessed, um, according to God's kingdom standard. And unlike the world's definition of blessed, it's not those who are strong or capable or intelligent or self-confident or popular and well-liked. It's not those who look like they have everything together. Rather, Jesus says, those who are blessed are the poor in spirit. It is those who mourn over their sin. It's the meek and the merciful and the peacemakers. It is even those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And in our passage for tonight, Jesus moves from the character of his disciples in verses 1 to 12 um, to their function, to their purpose and their influence in the world. And I'm sure that these verses might be quite familiar to you if you've grown up in the church. 
Um, but I think it's helpful to recognize, or it's helpful to recognize how they connect with our previous passage. Uh, in verses 10 to 12, Jesus ended his Beatitudes with a word about persecution. Right? Like, as his disciples, we can expect persecution. Uh, after all, Jesus says, they persecuted the prophets who came before you. So we shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised when others revile you, when they persecute you, uh, when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account, when they make accusations against you, or when they say things like the words that I just read. But for us, when we hear things like that, when we encounter that, the temptation, when we encounter persecution, is we want to hide, right? We want to retreat. We want to kind of keep to ourselves, or we want to stay where it's safe. We want to escape persecution. And that's why I think Jesus says what he says here in our passage tonight. This is how verse 1 to 12 connects. Jesus says, I still want you to be in the world. The inevitability of persecution does not give us an excuse to stay to ourselves. You are not meant to be the kinds of people that live out all these things described in the Beatitudes and to do that in isolation. You are meant to do that in the presence of the world. Being a disciple of Jesus is not meant to be this private, spiritual thing that you do. It's not something that you just do on Sundays, but you ignore or keep hidden the rest of the week. Why? Because God has assigned you a responsibility. He's given you a purpose. He's given you an influence. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, and you read the Beatitudes, and and you say, well, what kind of influence could these kinds of people possibly have? Right? Like, those who are meek, those who are poor in spirit. Well, our passage says a very significant and a very powerful influence, an indispensable one. Our passage says that, yeah, people will persecute you as Jesus' disciples. That might be a common experience, but that's not the only outcome. Right? There will also be some, by God's grace, who respond positively to you, who are attracted by the way that you live rather than repelled, and who might even glorify your Heavenly Father because of your influence. Now, in our passage, there's the, the two well-known metaphors right, uh, that kind of describe our role, our responsibility, and it's salt and light. And we're, we're going to go through each of them individually, but let me just note a couple things about them together. Um, so salt and light, they are both simple, basic necessities. Right? We, we use them every day. You use them every day. Uh, and what are they used for? Well, put simply, both salt and light, they act as positive influences in a negative environment. Right? Positive influences in a negative environment. And they exercise this influence by acting on or by enhancing something else. Right? It isn't just, it's not self-serving. It, it does something to something else. Um, Notice also with each of these metaphors, Jesus gives this affirmation of our identity. He says, you are, right? And then he gives a warning or a condition. And that you there is emphatic. He says, you and you only, or you and no one else. And this exclusivity is not because as Jesus' disciples, we're like better than everyone else. We're not superior or anything like that. But it's exclusive because it is only because of our relationship with Christ, Under King Jesus, we have this new identity, we have a new purpose, a new mission. And so Jesus says, okay, if that's you, then pay attention and sit up and listen carefully and realize that you need to accept this distinction, right? You need to accept this responsibility that is exclusively given to you, you and you only. Jesus says, listen carefully because it's very possible 
to reject it and to avoid it. And that's why he gives the warning. That's why there's that condition there. Right? For both salt and light, if you think about it, its essential quality is its only quality. Right? Salt's purpose is to be salty, and light's purpose is to shine its light. And once it, both of those lose that, then it becomes entirely useless. And Jesus says that can be us as his disciples. That if we become too withdrawn from the world, or if we become too similar to the world, that we are no longer useful, that we're no longer serving our purpose, then we no longer have the kingdom influence that might cause others to come to know God. Uh, and so let's go through each of these. There's definitely overlap between the two, um, but I'll try to highlight some of the distinctive ways that we can think about each one. And then we'll talk about our goal or our hope at the end. So point number one, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Um, so salt had many different purposes in the ancient world. And in fact, as I was studying this, I was surprised to see just like how, how much the commentators differed on like which specific use of salt that Jesus is talking about here. Um, but for, for us today, probably the most common and obvious use of salt is seasoning on food. Right? And uh, Jesus mentions that in, in this passage. He says, if salt has lost its taste. Um, so that's one of the purposes of salt, this seasoning. Uh, but in the ancient world, in addition to that, salt was also used for other things such as fertilizing, purifying, um, preserving. Before there was such thing as refrigerators, people had to keep their food from decaying by salting it. Right? And, and so salt was very valuable. And in fact, soldiers would even be paid sometimes not with coins or currency, but with salt. And actually, that's where the word salary comes from, just the Latin word for salt. Well, Jesus says, in the same way as Christians, we are called to be the salt of the earth. And we live in a world that is rotten, that is polluted by sin. We live in a world that's not getting better, but, it, but that is decaying. Right? And, and getting worse. And the Bible teaches us that God, in his common grace, has given certain restraining influences, um, things like our conscience, which everyone has and tells them what is right or wrong, um, things like government, which exists to, to curb evil and to promote good, things like human families, which provide order to society. But our passage says that one of the most significant things that God has given to this decaying and polluted world is his own disciples as the salt of the earth. And I think there are many, many ways we can practically do this, right? We can be the salt of the earth and um, kind of stop or, or hinder this decay um, by refraining from joining in on the world's sinful ways, right? By, by not joining in on crude humor or not participating in certain activities or not, uh, yeah, not like being dishonest with our academics, like even if other people are. Uh, we can be salt by speaking and standing up for the truth. Our Colossians 4.8 says we can, uh, our, our speech can be filled with salt, right? Gracious and seasoned with salt. We can be salt by working hard at what we do so that we might produce something for the common good. But Jesus doesn't give us a laundry list of items for what we can or what we should do as salt of the earth, because that would be a lot. Rather, what Jesus says is what we must not do. He says we must not lose our saltiness. If Salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? And that phrase, lose its saltiness, um, is translated elsewhere. Uh, Romans 1.22, 1 Corinthians 1.20. It's translated as to become foolish. And I think that's a helpful translation because just like we're going to see later in verse 15 with this picture of putting a lamp under a basket, like this is foolish, right? For salt to cease being salt is foolish. It is a ridiculous idea. 
And of course, you would, if, you were here, if you were to hear Jesus say this, you would say, of course, like, salt cannot stop being salt. But it can become contaminated. It can become mixed with impurities. It can become no longer distinct when it no longer serves its basic purpose. And Jesus says when that happens, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so this is the question for, for this first point. Are you distinct from the world? Are you distinct from the world? Beacon, this passage shows us that there is a fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, between the church and the world. Salt is distinct from that which it's preserving or that which it's seasoning. Light is fundamentally different from the darkness around it. And yet for so many of us, rather than seek to live the kind of distinct lives that Jesus calls us to do, we do the opposite. Right? We, we try to fit in. Uh, we want to be well-liked. We conform and we go along with what the world does, maybe for fear of, of standing out. And maybe we would even say, like, some of it is well-intentioned. Like, like, we think, oh, it's a way of just being relatable, right? Or it's a way of uh, <clears throat> building bridges in relationships in, in hopes of eventually maybe getting to the gospel. And sure, I think there's value in that. But Jesus warns us that we might actually, if we're not careful, be doing the opposite effect, Right? We can dilute our influence instead of increasing it in our efforts to become like the world rather than like Jesus. Some Christians can live in such a way that they are basically indistinguishable from non-Christians. Right? And they're functionally just denying their Christian name. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 19. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I think those are convicting words because all of us, we seek to be loved by the world, right? I know I do. And he's not saying that uh, we should like purposely seek out persecution. We should not purposely seek out reasons for the world to hate us. But does the world love you because you look just like it? Do your ambitions look like those of the world? <clears throat> does your speech sound like just like the world? Are your entertainment choices, your social media presence easily confused with the world? Think about your friendships. Who influences who in your friendships? Um, I heard one pastor describe it like this. He said, do you simply reflect your environment like a thermometer does? Or do you influence your environment like a thermostat does? Are you like a thermometer which just reflects the environment or do you actually influence and change your environment like a thermostat. The places that you go and the people that you encounter any different because you were there. And, and this doesn't have to be with, or this doesn't have to do with being the loudest, the most extroverted, the most like magnetic personality, the life of the party, the most like influential. I think we all can think of people like that. Maybe you're not like that naturally. No, this comes from being distinct as Christ's disciples. Right? Are, are places and people different because you were there and you know them? I like the question that Pastor Kim has often has. He says, what in your life can only be explained by the gospel? What in your life can only be explained by the gospel? Is there something that is so obvious, so clearly recognizable that marks you out as a Christian? When others look at your life, would they come to you and ask, hey, why do you spend your time or money the way that you do? Why do you dedicate so much time to church and to God's people? Why do you care about purity in dating? Uh, why don't you seem as stressed and overwhelmed, even in the midst of exams and busyness? 
How can you be so peaceful with your future career plans? How can you be so joyful and hopeful when things don't go your way? And are we distinct like that, like the salt of the earth? Point number two is you're the light of the world. Um, So light was a very important metaphor, um, not just in this passage, but all throughout the Bible. Uh, For example, light throughout the Bible symbolizes purity as opposed to filth. It it symbolizes truth and knowledge as opposed to ignorance and error. It uh, symbolizes God's presence and revelation as opposed to the lack of his presence or abandonment. Uh, In the Old Testament, Israel, the nation of Israel, is described as having this missionary purpose to be a light to the nations. And that picture is saying that they're supposed to be a beacon, right? They're supposed to be this people that other nations could look to and they would know better the character of God. And then, of course, Jesus himself is the light of the world in John 8, 12. Uh, John 1, 9 also says that he's the true light, which gives light to everyone, uh, that he shines in the darkness. And so... As Christ's disciples, we are the light of the world, not because like, we produce the light ourselves, right? but because of our relationship to Christ, the light of the world. And just as the salt metaphor shows us something about the decaying, polluted nature of this world, the light metaphor also shows us something about this world, that we live in a world of darkness with little or no light of its own. John 3.19 says that the world or the people of the world love the darkness rather than the light right? because their, their works were evil. Uh, where we live in a world where people want to stay in the darkness. And I think the original audience would have understood this illustration of light and darkness better than we do um, because we have lights everywhere. Right? Like we're, even in the darkest rooms, like there's still some light that helps us to see. For us today, people go to places where there's not as much light, right? Um, Or not as much light pollution so they can see the stars. Like, that's what we do today. Um, But that's totally foreign to them. Like, light would have been such a a precious commodity. Um, Even, or without light, it would be pitch darkness, pitch black. And so even the slightest light would pierce the darkness. Maybe you guys have experienced this before. Like, for me, sometimes when I'm trying to get around... Uh, in my room or something like that, or I'm trying to find like something at night, and I don't want to cause too much disturbance. Like I have my phone, but I don't turn on the flashlight because it's like blinding, right? I just you just hit your lock button and you just need the dim glow of your screen, right? And that's like enough to to find what you need or do what you need to do. In the same way, Jesus says that even a well placed lamp can give light to all in the house. Or a city that is hidden, or a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Even if you were miles and miles away, like the, the, the glow of that city would provide some light for you to see. Um, it's interesting that, that Jesus chooses these two specific illustrations of light. He says, uh, a city on a hill and a lamp in a house. And I think it's interesting because as believers, we are called to have this this broad and public and collective impact, right? A city on a hill kind of impact. I think about like your fellowship group on your very populated secular campus, or think about our church, Lighthouse, right? Uh, uh, An impact in the South Bay. Or I think about Christians all around the world, uh, like right now in Israel and in Gaza, right? There's this broad public collective impact, like a city on a hill. And yet the second picture is this like a personal, local, individual impact, a lamp in a house, right? an influence in the spheres of influence that you already have right now. 
Um, I like how one pastor described it. He says, you are sent as who you are, where you are, to whom you know, with what you know right now. You are sent as who you are, where you are, to whom you know, with what you know right now. Right? Like that's where you're called to do too. That's where you're called to have impact. And maybe this is the more convicting one for you because uh, it's easy to just like associate with a group of other Christians. And you say, oh, because I'm part of that group, like I'm salt and light. But what about your own individual lives? Right? Is, is your own individual life an example of salt and light? And again, Jesus gives us this pretty ridiculous picture of light not doing what it's supposed to do. He says, you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. What is the point of of that? No, you put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. And notice in both of these pictures, they're not meant to be hidden. They're not meant to be under something, but they're elevated, right? A city on a hill, a lamp on the stand. It's elevated for all to see. And so in our first point, we said that the Christian should not be confused with the world, right? You're called to be distinct. But here, we see that the Christian is also not to withdraw from the world. Are you engaged with the world? The purpose of light is to shine so that others might see. And so we must not completely shut ourselves away from the world. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, like, that's not me. Because you know, I, I live in L.A., um, I go to a, a public secular university. There's like literally like thousands of non-Christians around me every day. But really think about it. Like be honest. Who are the non-Christians that you really know? Who are the non-Christians that you really have influence with? Listen to what uh, one author, Rebecca Pippert, says in her book. She says, we, not, we must not become, as John Stott puts it, a rabbit hole Christian. The kind who pops his head out of a hole, leaves his Christian roommate in the morning and scurries to class, only to frantically search for a Christian to sit by, an odd way to approach a mission field. Thus he proceeds from class to class, and when dinner comes, he sits with Christians in his dorm at one huge table and thinks, what a witness. From there, he goes to his all-Christian Bible study, and he might even catch a prayer meeting where the Christians pray for the non-believers on his floor. But what luck that he was able to live on the only floor with 17 Christians. Then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate, safe. He has made it through the day, and his only contacts with the world were those mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities, but an insidious reversal of the biblical command to be salt and light to the world. When I read that, I was like, man, did you follow me around college? <laughs> Maybe you're feeling that as well. Right? And, and I, I think we did a lot of the same things in college. And I think one of the biggest regrets from my time in college was that my days and my weeks looked exactly like what the author described. And the thing is, when I was a freshman, when I was a sophomore, like I had heard from other people say the very same thing, that they wish that they shared the gospel more with other people during their time in college. So I already knew that, right? I knew that was a regret that I had to be careful of. And yet I was reluctant to engage with the non-believers around me because I told myself I didn't want to make things awkward Um, or because I feared rejection, or maybe even simply because it didn't seem all that important to me. I mean, after all, here's all of these other good things to do for God, like fellowship with other Christians. Listen, if you are a Christian, the reason why you are still here and not in heaven is because this world is our mission field. That must be an indispensable part of your identity, of your mission as a believer, that you must have a relationship with the world. You must be engaged 
with the world. That must be part of how you think about the Christian life. You cannot have influence without relationships. And so ask yourself, especially as you're in these college years, especially as you are brushing shoulders with so many people who need the gospel, are you intentionally thinking about someone, like at least one person, who is not a Christian? Is there a name or is there a face that comes to mind? And when you think about that person, are you making a reasonable effort to reach out to them? Maybe it's just like a reminder on your phone to, to pray for them like this week or a calendar appointment or uh, an invitation to church. Right? Is there some sort of reasonable effort where you're actually trying to reach out to this person? They don't just come up whenever you hear sermons like this. Are you not only distinct from the world, but also engaged with it? As Jesus says, a well-placed believer gives light to all who are around. Point number three, uh, that they may see and give glory to God. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So verse 16 is our purpose. It is our motivation. It is the great hope that we have as we seek to be salt and light. And that great hope is the glory of our Father in heaven. Right? And let me just point out a few things here real quickly. One is that our efforts to be salt and light, it doesn't just end with ourselves. Okay? It doesn't just end with ourselves. Jesus says to let your light shine before others. Why? That they may see your good works. Right? Uh, but later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually also going to say, in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Right? So how does that work? Like you're supposed to do things to be seen by others. And Jesus says, like, don't do something to be seen by others. Well, I, I hope the answer is clearly obvious, right? It's we don't be salt and light for the sake of ourselves. We're not standing out simply that we might look good. Right? Isn't, that what the, isn't that what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for? They did religious things in order to build their own brand in order to gain a certain reputation in the praises of men. Rather, Jesus says, let your light shine before others in such a way that when they see your good works, they don't give you glory, right? But they give God glory. They are helped and they're pointed upward to God. And so our efforts don't just end with ourselves. Secondly, our efforts to be salt and light don't end simply with human good, but God's glory. So this is kind of a next step after that. We live as salt and light, by operating distinctly from the world, right? As we seek the good of others, as we influence them in a positive way. And like I said, there are many, many practical ways. Maybe you can brainstorm this in your small groups that, that you can do this, right? Whether it's in your classrooms, in your workplaces, in your homes. But the goal is not simply that others around us might be better, but that God would receive glory. And notice what Jesus says there. He says that it's those who see our good works who are the ones who are giving glory to our Father in heaven. In other words, the good works themselves that we do, yeah, they, they glorify God, right, as we live as salt in the world, salt and light in the world. When we shine his light and when we actually expose other people's darkness for what it is, that's glorifying to God. But this is more than that. Jesus says, for some of those people who are watching our lives, they themselves are the ones who will glorify God. Right? Why? Because they have come to know him. Jesus is talking about conversion. He's talking about these people who used to be on the other side being drawn in and won over, right? Them becoming followers of God themselves. And so this means, yes, we live in such a way that is distinct and engaging with the world, 
but we must also engage them with the gospel. Being salt and light is not just doing and living, but it might involve speaking and explaining. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And so are you ready to answer those questions? And are you ready to answer those questions with your words, right? with a gospel explanation, with a reason for the hope that is in you? So light shines, it exposes the darkness, it creates this obvious contrast between the Christian and the world, but it doesn't simply expose, but it shows the way out. So don't miss that part. Jesus Christ, he came to illumine the darkness, he came to expose the cause of that darkness, but he also came to make a new and living way out of that darkness back to God. And so in the same way, if we are light, then we need to help show others that there is a way out of darkness back to God. And that way is Jesus Christ. And in him, we don't only get a greater understanding of the problem of this polluted world, of the darkness of this world, but we get a vision of light. We get actually a new life. We get a new heart. We get a new nature that can actually love the light and hate the darkness. Um, Turn real quick to 1 Peter 2.12. 1 Peter 2.12. This verse is... Very similar to our passage for tonight, and I think it does a great job of tying together a lot of what we've been talking about. So 1 Peter 2.12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Right. So there you have engagement. You are among the Gentiles, and yet you're keeping it honorable. There's engagement and distinction. Keep reading so that when they speak against you as evildoers, there's persecution that we might expect. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's influence. And so when we live as salt and light, our lives will repel others. It will invite criticism. People will shake their heads at you. They will criticize you. But also when we live as salt and light, those same distinctives, they also create influence. Those same distinctives that repel will also attract and perhaps even help others to come to know God. That is our great purpose and our motivation and our hope. You know, at the beginning of this message, I read that quote um, from that secular professor, which he said about Christians. Well, that professor was actually Rosaria Butterfield. And if you're not familiar with her, Rosaria is a Christian author and speaker. Uh, She's probably one of the clearest and most helpful voices today when it comes uh, specifically to biblical sexuality. Um, And before she knew Christ, she was an English professor at Syracuse. She was a skeptic of all things Christianity. She was Uh, in a committed lesbian relationship. She she specialized in queer theory. She was an outspoken activist for feminist philosophy and LGBTQ. She calls herself an unlikely convert. She describes her conversion experience as a train wreck. She says she lost everything but the dog, right? She like lost her community, her friends, her, her identity, and yet she gained eternal life in Christ. And prior to her conversion, what happened is she had written an article about Christians, just part of, she was still a non-Christian trying to research Christians and what they believed. And she had written this article and she received a letter from a pastor named Ken Smith. And receiving a letter wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Her article got a lot of responses, but she says she, re- she remembers that she, uh, she would have two boxes on her desk, one box for, for hate mail and one box for fan mail. And when she got Pastor Ken's letter, she, it defied her filing system. She didn't know where to put it. That, that letter led to an invitation 
and then to a friendship, and eventually to Rosaria's conversion. This is how she describes it. She says, in the normal course of my life, questions emerged that simply exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Those questions sat dormant until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor. And at this time, I was deeply suspicious of both the motives and worldview that Christians espoused. I had seen plenty of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who protested against me and mocked me at gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock. It actually engaged. And he seemed to me to be palpably different from those Christians who hid behind placards at gay pride day. And as a result, when he invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted. My motives at the time were perfectly clear. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else actually happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. And they entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. And they did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. Had this Christian pastor not both shared, but also lived out the gospel as my neighbor and my friend for years and years, over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way, those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind, and I might not have met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. Rosaria and Ken's story is a living example of our passage. Right? Ken's life was noticeably, noticeably distinct. It was distinct in his godliness and obedience. He was distinct in having this obviously personal relationship with God. He was even distinct from other Christians that uh, she had encountered through his kindness and his compassion. And I'm guessing that his uh, distinctness pricked her conscience, right? It showed her that her secular worldview was bankrupt. It made her question the things that she believed. And yet he engaged her with the gospel. He asked questions to genuinely seek understanding. He and his wife invited her into their home over and over again, not just out of obligation, but actually to become friends. And God used Ken's influence and testimony to bring Rosario to saving faith to a point where she herself is giving glory to her father in heaven. And maybe you hear that and, and you're like, well, that's just like just a really special and amazing example. Right? Like something like that is never going to happen to me. And you're right, it is, it is an extra, I think, amazing and unlikely conversion story. And, and sure, maybe you won't experience something as dramatic. But think about it. How many of you have heard testimonies of others, maybe even your own testimony, in which it was the influence of other Christians that helped to lead you to know Christ. In fact, in a couple Sundays, we're actually going to hear um, the testimonies of several of our brothers and sisters in Beacon who are getting baptized. Um, but it, it wasn't by these Christians conforming to the world, right? But by standing out. Or it was because a believer was willing to reach out, to extend an invitation or to share the gospel, or simply to be a friend. Begin. what would happen if you went out tomorrow to your unsafe friends, or you went back to campus on Monday, and you remembered first and foremost that your identity, your calling, your job description is to be salt and light. 
right? Not, not first and foremost a student or whatever your job title is or whatever your personality is or whatever your major is. Although all of those things are important, right? They, they are important to who you are and what you do. But what if you just thought to yourself, first and foremost, I am called to be salt and light. And if that's true, then my job is to shine, right? My job is to be salty like salt is. How would you operate differently? Because when you know who you are, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Begin. That is what we are called to do as Jesus' disciples in this world, to be a faithful presence, to be salt and light wherever we go, trusting that even our ordinary small acts of obedience can have massive eternal impact. It can help others see your lives, the light of your lives, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray... Uh, For all of us, I pray especially for these college students, you have placed them in such a strategic and critical point in their lives, um, on their campuses, uh, with the people that they know, with uh, unsaved people all around them. And they get to do this every day. I pray that they would really recognize um, just the urgency of this call to be salt and light. I, I pray that they would recognize the weight of this, this responsibility, that that is why we are still here. And I pray that they would recognize the joy of this, that as they seek to be salt and light, even in the smallest, most ordinary ways, that they, their influence by your grace can be used um, to bring others to know Christ. So I pray uh, yeah, maybe for people that we have in our minds right now at this moment, I pray that you would help us to be intentional, that we'd be uh, making the effort to reach out to to these people, um, even maybe starting tonight. God, I pray that as we go into our small group times, that uh, it would just lead to fruitful conversations. You would help us to uh, help each other to be better, to encourage one another as we apply your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.